Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5? Genesis chapter 5. I want to say, first of all, that was a blast um, to do with the kids. And uh, first service was better at dancing than the adults in the service. I'm just going to tell you, the whole... The whole church was dancing, doing the motions. So you guys have some. Maybe we'll try that again next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, no, it was. Uh, it's been fun, and just seeing the kids do that. And just remember, when you join in with them, what you're doing is encouraging them in their walk, to encourage them to show joy in the Lord. So let's let's spread that joy to our kids and to demonstrating it to them. So Genesis chapter five, we come to an interesting chapter in the book of Genesis, one that. How do we deal with it? Right. How do we deal with this chapter that seems to be just a genealogy of this line of Adam? And when God created Adam, he created him in his image. And then we have this line of Adam that runs through hundreds and thousands of years. What do you do with it? It seems like it's one of those passages of scripture that maybe like in our Sunday school class today, you get to it and there's all these names and you just want to skip them. Right. Anybody else come to the names and you just kind of like and that guy begat that guy begat that guy begat that guy and you just kind of move on. I want you today to see in this passage of scripture, there's far more than just a list of names. There's far more than just a list of names because we have to come to this passage of scripture understanding that God's word is inerrant and infallible and every verse in it has something for our edification, for our growth. Every verse in it has something for us to become more and more like Christ. And so we come to chapter five in order to find who Jesus is and how God is working in the lives of his people and to demonstrate his goodness. I want you to see that in these verses today. I want you to see in this really the second section of Genesis. The first section was the generations of the earth as God created the earth. Now we come to the second section of what we call the Toledot section. So if you go through Genesis, like we talked about in our first sermon on Genesis, there's these sections that tell the generations of the earth. And now we're in the generations of Adam to show us that God is at work in his people. Remember what's happened so far. God created the world. God created man. Everything was perfect. Everything was great. Perfect relationships. And what happened? Man sinned. And in doing so, the image of God was marred upon humanity. Sin and destruction, death entered the picture. Deceit was now the way of life for people. There was a curse placed on the earth, placed on the serpent, placed on all that would happen that man would touch. And the spiral just kept on spiraling out of control. Last week we looked at Cain. And what does Cain do? He does the most heinous thing. He takes the image of God imprinted on his brother Abel and he destroys it. The most precious thing about his brother was not the fact that he was his brother, is that he was made in the image of God. And Cain destroys it. Something that is left for only God to do because God is the one who stamped Abel with his image. And so as we come to chapter 5... We've just come out of looking at Cain's line of Cain's genealogy and his people who would follow after him, a people that would not trust the Lord, a people who would not call upon the name of the Lord, a people who would be in sin. And even though they had great success in the world, they were they were artists and they were manufacturers. They were building cities. They were doing great things in the culture. All of it was leading to more violence, 
and more death. We can see that in our culture even today, right? Art is good. People just use it for evil. Manufacturing, it's not bad. People just use it for evil. It's amazing how quickly a factory that's producing toys can turn into a factory that's producing weapons, isn't it? We seem to do it whenever world wars start or when dictators take over countries. How the most innocent of things can become the most violent of things. And that's the way of the world. The way of the world is a culture of death. And Cain's line tells us that. But God is gracious. God will deliver his people. He will keep his promises. He will bring one who will stomp on the head of the deceiver, the serpent, who will crush Satan and all who follow him. He will bring one. But it won't be through Abel's line. It won't be through Cain's line. Instead, God gives Eve another son named Seth. And Eve blesses the Lord and praises the Lord for this son, this new man that has been given, because God will keep his promises through Seth's line. So we come to chapter 5. This is Seth's line. This is Adam to Seth and forward. So here what we have is the beginning of a direct line that will take us through Scripture to a man named Jesus. We'll have a direct line from this moment to Jesus. And if you get that, if you begin to understand what God is at work doing, that he's demonstrating his grace and mercy in this moment, then all of the death that surrounds this passage and all of the destruction on the earth will begin to melt away and you'll be able to see clearly what Jesus is up to. That's my desire for you today. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word, beginning with chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech, a different Lamech than chapter 4, who was the violent guy who said, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, 
My vengeance is 77-fold. Different Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The next chapters will unfold the story of Noah, who will keep that prophecy. He will be the one through whom God will relieve the curse that was placed on the earth because of Cain. We'll see it in later chapters that God will lift that curse in this covenant he will make with Noah. But before we get there, there's some things that you just notice kind of in the pattern, in the rhythm of the way this, these verses read, right? What happens? Such and such lived a certain amount of time, had a kid, right? Then lived a certain amount of time. We get the total, and then he died. So over and over and over again. Well, why all this repetition? What is it that God wants us to learn and to understand? Well, I think the first thing he wants us to see is right there in the first couple of verses. When we get a recap of what God has already done so that we don't miss it in the rest of the genealogy, what God is up to. And this is what God had done. It says it very plainly. God created man and he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Then Adam had Seth and passed on his image to Seth. You catch that in the verses? So God gives his image to Adam. Adam passes on his image to Seth. At the heart of what God wants us to understand is that his image and glory are imprinted on every single one of these human beings and every single one of us. That this is the power and the grace of God at work. That even though Adam and Eve had sinned and had shunned God's image and glory, even though the people on earth will try their best to destroy and maim the image of God on people, we can't get rid of it. Can't get rid of it. It it may be marred beyond recognition at times. It may seem to have been erased, but it's there. Essentially, what makes us human is the fact that we are made in the image of God. We have a tendency to think what makes us human is, there's there's sayings like this, to be human is to err. Right? Well, I'm only human. What are we usually talking about when we say I'm only human? When we make mistakes or we do wrong, right? What do you expect? Only human. Well, what God wants us to understand is what makes you human human is not your sin. What makes you human is you're made in the image of God. What makes you human is that from the beginning, God has put it within people to pass on his image from generation to generation. So the image of God has not been destroyed, but instead has been passed down from generation to generation, which means that every person in these verses and every person in this room because we've come from these people, has the ability to hear God's word. Every person, regardless of age, regardless of where you come from, you have the ability to hear from God. God is speaking, you have the ability to hear. It's only by our own choice that we ignore him. Romans 1 makes that clear. 
that every single person who walks the face of the earth should be able to see God's attributes in creation. God speaking through his creation, God speaking through his word, and yet we reject him. But we have the ability to hear God's word. That's grace, isn't it? That God would allow us to still thousands of years later to hear from him. Every single one of them, because they're made in God's image, every single one of us is charged with ruling God's world. We're told to have dominion over the earth. Every single one of us is meant to be an ambassador of God in ruling the world. We're supposed to do it in the way God would have us rule the world. We're supposed to cultivate and care for this world that God has made. Every single person in these verses and every single one of us can have a relationship with God. In fact, every one of us is in a relationship with God. If you walked in the doors today and you're not even a believer in Christ, I want you to know you have a relationship with God. I know that sounds odd, right? This is the relationship the Bible says that those who are believers in Jesus Christ have. We are children of the living God. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? That if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're children of the living God. We're not just called citizens, even though that's something... We are. We're citizens of heaven. It's not just that we're subjects in the kingdom, even though we are. We're called children of God. But what about the people who walked in the door today who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but being his children? You still have a relationship. Because you're either his child or his enemy. That's what the Bible tells us, is while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is the type of grace God gives. Every single human being has a relationship with God, either his child or his enemy. And he makes enemies into his children. (laughs) That's the grace of God. That's what we learn by all of these names is the, the image of God has been passed on and passed on and passed on. Which means that every single person on this, these pages and every single person in this room is a partaker of God's blessing and grace. You may not recognize it. You may have walked in the room saying, God has not shown blessing on me. Believe me, this week, not a blessing week. Really? You're breathing? Did you eat? I mean, I know it's hot outside, but the sun's shining, Right? The rain, when it comes, making things grow so that we're not in the middle of a famine right now like parts of the world. You realize that's grace and blessing, right? That every bit and morsel of food that you eat is a gift from God. How about your husband or wife sitting next to you? How about your kids? Grace, blessing, sometimes. How about the fact that you're here and we have air conditioning? What? Do you not recognize that God is gracious and he continues to pour out his blessings upon us, even though we don't deserve it and even though we would never recognize it as a blessing from him? Oftentimes we think that things like air conditioning and food is something we earned. (laughs) But instead, he is a God of blessing. They're partakers of the blessing of God and the grace of God. They're partakers of the covenant of God with his people because God's blessing and grace has not been destroyed by sin. Isn't that good news? That no matter how bad sin gets, God is still gracious. That no matter how bad your sin is, God is still a God of grace and a God of mercy. That you can't destroy his blessing. That nothing we could do could actually thwart God's plan of 
blessing his creation and making his name known. Isn't that good news? Because the fact of the matter is we tend to talk about God in terms like this. Well, we need to let God do. You don't need to let God do nothing. God is God. God can do whatever God wants to do. Sometimes what we need to do is just get out of the way and let God be God and stop trying to be him. The fact of the matter is God does what God wants to do and God does as he pleases. And what he pleases is to pour out his mercy and grace upon us. The question is whether we're going to recognize him as God and see how he's moving. The good news is here, they were people who were under his blessing and his grace. You can see that they understood the blessing and grace of God because they were following the command of God. See, he blessed Adam and Eve and he said, you know, be fruitful and multiply, right? So his blessing was actually a command. So they understand his blessing because they're following the command, aren't they? Every single verse is, and such and such had a kid and then had other sons and daughters. They get it. Be fruitful and multiply. Just think about this. How many of you knew your grandparents? Great-grandparents. Great-great-grandparents. Great-great-great-grandparents. Five times great-grandparents. Nobody? All of them knew their five-time great-grandparents. Think about that. First kid born around 65, something like, maybe not the first kid. There could be other sons and daughters beforehand, but the one we're talking about, born around 65 to 137 years old, and then they're living for 800 more years. Like, family reunions were literally like every person on the planet showed up. Right? I mean, it's like... Long lost cousin showed up for the family reunion. This is kind of the way it goes, right? So you knew, you knew your five times great grandparents. So there's a legacy that's being passed on that we don't get right now. This legacy of faith, this legacy of faithfulness, this legacy of being fruitful and multiply. So over and over again, they're having these sons and then they're having more sons and daughters. So if you take other sons and daughters, that phrase, plus the 960 years of life, you've got exponential population growth. People want to know how the earth was populated from just a few people. That's how you do it. You have lots of kids over a 900-year life. And you're going to have a lot of people. Okay? Dogs have litters of how many kids or how many puppies, right? You know what I'm saying? 900 years of people having babies, you're going to have a lot of people on the earth. So the earth is now being populated, but not only is the earth being populated, Seth's line, we read at the end of chapter 4, is this, verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, this was the good news last week, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what we're reading now is the line that comes from Seth. So not only are they populating the earth, they're propagating a message about how great God is. They're calling upon the name of the Lord. They're people of faith and people of faithfulness. The word for calling upon the name of the Lord is kara. And what it holds to is this idea of your faith, but it also holds this idea of proclamation. So faith and faithfulness. And if you're ever wondering how those two things fit together, like James says, faith without works is dead you can see it in the lives of the patriarchs here in genesis they had faith so they obeyed 
they demonstrated their faith by obeying. Oftentimes you see the obedience of Abraham and Noah and guys like that, and it's called faith. You ever notice that? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did it look like for him to believe God? Well, he left his land. He went to a new place. Right? These are the, Noah started building an ark. These are all acts of faith. So faith and faithfulness always go hand in hand. But the word also used throughout Moses' writings in the Old Testament, this, this word kara, this idea of calling upon the name of the Lord, carries with it not just the idea of prayer, and you can hear that in it, can't you call upon the name of the Lord? But it's also proclamation. They're telling how great God is. So it makes sense that when we get to Deuteronomy and God gives his law to his people, what does he tell his people about his law? He says, you know what you need to do? You need to bind it to your forehead. You need to write it on the door. You need to be speaking about it with your children everywhere you go. It makes sense that God would say, not only do I want you to know that I'm God, but I want you to proclaim that I'm God to everybody you meet. Parents in the room. Are you leaving it to VBS to tell your kids how great God is? You're leaving it to our OPBC kids, the youth group, youth camp, to tell your kids, to tell your grandkids how great God is. We have ten generations of, Seth, of Adam's line here proclaiming how great God is. Generation after generation calling upon the name of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Every service, just about every week, we end by reading the same scripture. Some of you know it by memory now, right? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, he's made us a people so that we would proclaim, so that we would call upon the name of the Lord. God's image and glory stamped on mankind spread to the next generation that they would bear his image and believe he's glorious. But there's a second thing we learn through these genealogies, and I, I say it's the gospel. It's right at the heart of our need when it comes to the gospel and right at the heart of the good news of the gospel. This is not an exhaustive genealogy here. There's ten generations, just like chapter four had Ten generations, okay? And you're going to find other places that will have numbers of generations. So it's probably more of a selective genealogy. There would be other sons and daughters, and there might even be generations that would fit in there somewhere. So you can't necessarily count up all the years and figure out how old the earth is from this. But I will tell you this. There's a purpose to what he wants us to understand. There are certain things we can draw from every single one of these people that's named. The first is this. Each person is important to God's economy. Even on Cain's side in chapter 4, we get the names. You ever wonder why the Bible has all these names? And just, instead of just saying there were ten generations. Because that's all it's going to say about Jared. That's it. That's all you get. Jared. He had a kid. Then he died. Good job, Jared. You made it in the Bible. But what do you do with that? Why is Jared's name in there? Because every single person is important in God's economy. Every single person along the line to Jesus plays an important role. 
You may sit here and you may say, I, I don't know what my purpose is in God's economy and what God's doing. If you have kids, you know what your purpose is. If you have grandkids, you should know what your purpose is. If you don't have kids or grandkids, you should know what your purpose is. Other people's kids and grandkids. To make sure that they know how great Jesus is. You got a job, you got a purpose. To show how great Jesus is. You're retired, you've got a purpose. Use that money that you saved up for your retirement to help make sure people know how great Jesus is. <laughs> you got a purpose. You don't have to wonder what it is because every single person plays a role in God's economy. Every single one of us is important to God's plan. But we also see that every single person's days are important in God's economy. The Apostle Paul says, hey, why are you guys talking and arguing about festivals and feast days and one day is more important than another day? Why are you guys doing that? That's elementary. That's elemental stuff. You should have moved on to more important things than that right now. But isn't it interesting how we still live that way? Christmas is far more important than other days when it comes to the gospel. Easter is far more important than other days when it comes to the gospel. Sundays are far more important than others when it comes to the gospel. If we live that way and we think that way, that only certain days are important, guess what we do with the rest of our days? Waste them. Don't we too often waste our days? Don't we too often waste days that just aren't as important as other days in our minds? What if every day of our life we understood the third reality that we see here and that's that every single person in God's economy, their days are numbered? (laughs) What happened to all but one of these guys? And he died. He lived this many years and he died. Methuselah nearly lived a thousand years and he died. You're never ready for death, are you? You're never ready for that loved one to die, are you? You're never ready, even though you see him suffering. You're just not ready. It always takes us by surprise because it's final. There's a finality to it. And it's meant to be that way to remind us that our days are numbered. The word here is maveth. It's instead of and he died, it's literally just one word, one succinct word to show the finality of life. Each person will face it. Death is universal because sin is universal. Doesn't the Bible tell us that? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Ah, but there's good news, isn't it? Don't forget the second half of that, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we remember that our days are numbered, but our days are important, we begin to show that we understand what our purpose is. That we're here because of God. We're here for God. We're here for His grace to shine through us and to work in us. And so this genealogy, all surrounded by death, every single one of these guys dying except one, I want you to see the good news of the gospel. That death is universal because sin is universal, but God, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. 
That's the good news of the gospel. And so there's a little nugget stuck in here that I'm going to end with. And his name is Enoch. He's the seventh generation in, in Adam's line here in comparison to the seventh generation from Cain's line. If you go back to chapter 4, the seventh generation in Cain's line was a guy named Lamech. He's the guy who's dancing around in front of his two wives with his sword going, I'm going to kill everybody, right? Death, destruction, that's him. He shows the depravity of man in this downward spiral of depravity. But here's Enoch, and this is what is said of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, verse 21, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Lamech, the seventh generation of Cain, demonstrates the downward spiral of depravity without faith. Enoch walked with God, demonstrating a life of faith. It's an interesting phrase, walk with God. It's only used for, for a couple of people. It, it's a spiritual you know, thing that we say all the time. Are you walking with the Lord? Anybody ever ask you that? You walk, how's your walk with God? Anybody ever ask you that? That sounds really spiritual, right? The only problem is it's only used for a couple of people in the Bible. And Paul wasn't one of them. It was never said of Paul. It's only a couple of guys right here. You got Enoch and Noah. Those are the guys. They walked with God. There was something so intimate in their relationship with God that it's used for them and no one else. There was a true intimacy with God. It doesn't say that they walked before God, which is said of other people, that they walked before God living a, a, an ethical, holy life. Or that they walked after God, meaning that they followed after his law and his plans. No, they walked with God. It almost harkens back to what you can imagine what it was like with a perfect relationship between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. When God comes to walk in the cool of the evening, you can almost imagine the intimacy there in the garden. Enoch's experiencing that. This idea of walking with God denotes a life that's pleasing to God. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us just that. Hebrews 11, chapter, or verse 5 and 6 says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken them. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Talk about a compliment. Talk about something to be known for. Jared, what would you do? You died. Enoch, you pleased God. I wonder what, what's said of us when we die. Oh, that it would be that I pleased God. To walk with God is to walk in a life that's pleasing to God. But Hebrews 11.6 goes on. So verse 5 tells us that Enoch pleased God. Verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch walking with God denotes that he had an intimacy with God, that he lived a life pleasing to God. But what that really means is he lived a life of faith. He lived a life marked by faith in God. He believed, according to Hebrews 11, that God exists. He believed in the existence of God. 
not just that God is a being out there, but he believed in God's existence so much that God is the one who made him and planted his image on him that he walked with God. Do you believe in God so much that you look for him? Think about that. Do you believe that God exists so much that you look for him moving and working? Or do you just wait for somebody else to tell you about it? So often I think that we say we believe in God, but we just never expect that he's actually going to work in our lives. We just live vicariously through what he's doing in other places with other people. Enoch wasn't going to settle for that. Enoch believed in God's existence and that God was his God. Do you believe in God like that? Because the second thing Hebrews 11.6 tells us is that not only do you believe in the existence of God, but Enoch and we, if we're going to be pleasing to God, must believe that God rewards those who seek him. And what was Enoch's reward? Pretty great. A, you're commended as being pleasing to God. B, you don't have to die. He was just taken up. The Bible, the way it literally says it is, he was and then he wasn't. That's it. He was and then he wasn't. He was no more. I don't know how he was taken up. I don't know if another chariot came down, right? Picked him up. I don't know if one day he just went to sleep and then he was gone. There's no clue as to how that happens here in the text. But what I know is this was a bodily ascension to be with God. Lamech's life full of violence and death ended in death. Enoch's life never ended. He just changed location. And here's the thing. Not much changed about his life. He was walking with the Lord one day on earth. The next day he's walking with the Lord in eternity. Wouldn't it be a great thing to come to the end of your life and there not be that much difference? (laughs) that you were so intimately knowledgeable about who God is, that you saw him working in your life, that you were talking to him, that you were walking with him, that when you were to wake up in eternity, you'd see his glory and you'd be wowed by his glory again. But the intimacy, you see, that's what God offers us. The intimacy doesn't have to be that much different. He draws near. He rewards those who seek him. But I want you to see this as well because this is a warning for us. Not only does he reward those who seek him, but Enoch also, if he was going to be pleasing to God and trust him and be a person of faith, would have to believe also that God judges those who do not trust him. Jude verses 14 and 15 make this clear that this is exactly what Enoch believed. It was also about these that Enoch, and by these it's the evil people, people in the world who would reject God, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. He likes the word ungodly. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here's what he says. He says, God will reward those who seek him, but he will judge those who reject him. Faith demands that we believe both. Faith demands that we believe who God is, and he's a God of grace, but he's a God of justice as well. We have to believe that about him. 
And when we believe that about him, here's what we come to. Here's what we end up with. We end up with a life pleasing to God. See, we tend to think that pleasing God simply means that all we have to do is do the right thing. Like we we get the rules and we follow it. See, that's following after God. It's not bad. It's just not ever going to get you to heaven to follow the rules. No, walking with God. Walking with God is what he desires. He rewards it in ways you and I can only begin to imagine. Oh, that we would be a people who would believe that God rewards those who seek him, judges those who reject him, so that we will draw near to him, to know him, to believe who he is. Who is he? He's the God who made you. He's the God whose image you bear. He's the God who continually blesses you. He's the God who is holy and just and righteous. He's the God who is fair. He's the God who knows right from wrong. He's the God who defines right from wrong. And he's the God who looks at you and me and says, stop trying to define it for yourself. Trust me. That's what he's saying. There's another picture here right at the end. Another guy that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. His name is Noah. Why is he at the end of this chapter? So he doesn't die. Here's why he's at the end of this chapter. Because God is going to accomplish his purposes. And his purpose is to display his glory. Righteous and gracious all in one. What better picture in the Old Testament do we have of God's righteousness and holiness his justice and power, his hatred of sin, and his grace and his mercy than Noah. This is what said, this finally, he'll be the one who will deliver us from that curse that's on the ground, that curse of Cain on the ground, that it won't produce anything for us anymore. Finally, he will be the one. You know what happened? After the flood, guess what God did? He lifted the curse from the ground. Noah is a great picture of one who balances. In that story, we see God's justice and we see God's goodness. But he's not the best picture. No, the best picture of God's justice and grace is Jesus himself. That's why the Bible will tell us, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us that He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, the perfect one, to be sin on our behalf. Why? Well, Romans 3 tells us because God had overlooked a bunch of sins over time. And all of creation could look at God and say, you're not just and fair. So what did he do? He placed on Jesus the sins of us all. Justice and grace. So when we sing the song Amazing Grace, it's not just a good old song that we all know. There's such a truth in it. If you know the story behind it, then you know of a man who was so deep, John Newton, who was so deep and dark in sin, that he would look at human beings and say they are not human. He was a slave trader. He would look at the image of God imprinted on another human being and say, there's no value outside of money 
for that person. And God redeemed him out of that. And he began to see God's value. And when he saw God's value, he began to see the value on others. And he became one of the chief champions for ending the slave trade in England and the colonies. See what God can do? See, he turns death into life. He takes image bearers and helps them be God glorifiers. He helps you not just bear the image of God, but to proclaim how great he is. He's brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light for that purpose. That's grace. If you're here today and you haven't experienced that grace, I want you to experience that grace. Because the good news is, after Noah, you get this long line of people that all jack up the world again. Until you get to a man named Jesus. Who will make all things new. Including you if you will trust him. You want to please God? Trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would be people who would trust you. Lord, as we sing these words, that they would not just be words, but they would penetrate our hearts to be people who would live under that grace with faith. We thank you that from the beginning you have been redeeming your people by grace through faith, by your mercy and grace through faith, not through their actions, but through trusting you. Lord, help us to please you by trusting you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to close by singing Amazing Grace.